Well, as we turn to the word this morning, I want to open with a question. And that question is this. What do you think of when you hear the word church? What do you think of when you hear that word church? For many, I think especially younger generations, that word church doesn't sort of conjure up warm and fuzzy feelings. You know, we're okay talking about spirituality. We may even be okay with Jesus. But we internally begin to recoil when we hear that word church. For we often hear the word and we think about an institution, about power and money, about religious dogma, and about political agendas. Why would I want to be part of an organized religion that gave us things like the Crusades, or the Inquisition, or sex abuse scandals, or indulgences, whatever it might be? And I think we even see that. It's reflected in what we call ourselves. So we don't plant churches anymore with the name of, this is First Baptist Church, you know, fill in the blank. We don't, we don't plant churches with those names. It's, it's Cross or New Heights. It's Harvest or The Hill or The Well. We want people first to think about Jesus, about personal growth, about thriving wheat fields and cool, refreshing water, not images and names that would reek of cold and dead and institutionalized religion. Well, why is that? I think it's because so many churches lose their way. They lose their way because the people within them lose their way. You know, we've had enough of the Stuarts and the, or rather the Swaggerts, right? And the, and the Haggards, characters like that. So we, we, we say enough of that. We're just going to carve our own path. And we pursue spirituality and a relationship with the divine apart from any formal gathering. To paraphrase popular Christian author Donald Miller, who wrote Blue Like Jazz, if you're familiar with that book. Paraphrase him, I'll follow Jesus how I like, thank you. And I don't need to be a part of your tribe or any tribe to do so. Now, we might hear a quote like that and think, okay, that's a peculiarly sort of postmodern problem in the generation of our age. But, but actually, it's not. It's not churches have been tempted to lose their way and people become delusioned from the very beginning. They've been torn apart by factions and divisions, by immorality, by asceticism, by legalism and license, by individualism and prejudice. And we know that because all of these problems I just mentioned and more were actually present in one church, the church in Corinth in the very first century. And Paul has something to say to this crumbling church. And Paul has something to say to us as he addresses them and as we look into it. What does he have to say to us so that we don't, as a church, run the risk of descending into petty squabbles and bickering and backstabbing? How do we maintain our corporate witness as a church to unity and to holiness Right, that's what we get to think about in these next 13 weeks as we go through 1 Corinthians. And when you arrived and received your ministry guide, you should have gotten something like this in it, this little bookmark with the upcoming preaching schedule. Now, I don't do this just because I enjoy getting together, you know, 14 weeks or what have you early in the semester. I, I do this 
Right? We do this as a staff so that this can be a blessing to you. So you can keep it in your Bible or so you can put it on your bedside table, wherever it needs to be, and you know what's going to be preached the upcoming Sunday. And you can be reading that in preparation for the preaching because I guarantee you, you read the text prior to hearing it preached on Sunday, you will gain more. You will grow and learn and be more encouraged if you come engaged and ready to hear the word. So do keep this with you. For while God has, he's been very kind to us as a church, uniting us, gathering us around the word, freeing us right from the noose of that debt that had been around our necks for so many years, all those things being true, we still haven't arrived. We are still liable still liable to destructive behaviors and practices that could tear apart the unity of this body. And so 1 Corinthians is great sort of preventative and palliative care. Right? It's going to help us diagnose weaknesses, and it's going to provide the remedy. And it's why, just for one reason, I'm so excited to study this book together with you over the next few weeks. So let's dive in. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, you can find it on page 952 there in the Pew Bible. So you should have Bibles before you. If you don't own one, just take one out of the pew there. Look and turn to page 952. And as you turn there, just a brief introduction about the book. Uh, It's the spring of about AD 50. We're talking modern-day Greece. The Apostle Paul, he's on his second missionary journey. But on this journey, he's not met with the red carpet treatment and cameras and throngs of enthusiastic supporters. No, it seems everywhere he goes, he's being beaten and run out of town. That happens in Philippi, happens in Thessalonica, happens in Berea. He moves on to Athens after that, but he finds even there little success. And then he moves from Athens down to Corinth. And given the struggles he's been under, it's no surprise in 1 Corinthians 2-3 that when he arrives in this proud and prosperous Corinth, he arrives, he says, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And you can read all about these accounts in Acts chapter 16 through 18. Now, Corinth had been a thriving Greek city until the Romans raised it in about 146 B.C., And for a century, it lay in ash and in rubble until Julius Caesar decided to have it rebuilt as a Roman colony to propagate Roman ideals in his own honor. And so he settles it with many of the restless citizens from Rome, citizens looking for prosperity, for opportunity, for upward mobility, things that were hard to come by in Rome, he settles those folks in Corinth. Now, geographically, it lay on a tiny isthmus connecting Italy and the Adriatic Sea, right in the west, to the Aegean Sea and much of Asia in the east. And it quickly thus became a hub for all the trade and travel happening between east and west. And thus the city prospered, teeming with trade and business, And because it didn't have this entrenched aristocracy, there was room for social mobility. Everyone's clamoring to get on top. They're jockeying for power and prestige and popularity. And the Corinthians would come to to pride themselves, really, on being intellectually sophisticated, being materially prosperous, being sexually liberated. And in many respects... I think their reckless ambition, their strong individualism, 
The pursuit of pleasure reflects many of the values in our own culture. It's just actually the Corinthians even took them more to heart. They're even more pronounced in that culture than even in our own, which I think is just a great reminder to us that the Corinthian church, right, it was birthed in a, in a milieu far more foreign and hostile to the gospel than our own culture. And so we shouldn't for a second doubt whether the gospel can take root here in Fayetteville, for if it can take root in Corinth, right, it can take root anywhere. Right, and so it's into this pretentious, into this decadent culture Paul arrives, and he comes as a tent maker or perhaps a leather worker. He meets fellow Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, who are refugees from Rome. He begins sharing the gospel, his early success. He has some in the synagogue, but of course then he's run out again. So we, he begins to preach to the Gentiles there in Corinth. And he's emboldened by a vision God gives him in Acts 18 that there are many people in that city. So he stays for 18 months. It's a long time, a second longest stay in any city in the New Testament. And he plants a church and establishes establishes that church. And after that 18 months, he moves on to Ephesus. But he's not in Ephesus all that long before word starts to get back that things are slipping. Things are going south in Corinth. We read in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 that Paul evidently had sent a letter to them, a letter we don't have about sexual promiscuity and some warnings and instruction. And they, the Corinthian church, have some questions they want Paul to answer some things they need help with. And while they're writing to Paul with their own questions, oral reports continue to come back of problems in the church. And what you have in 1 Corinthians is Paul's response. His response to those oral reports he's getting and his response to the questions the Corinthians had raised. And just to give you a brief overview of the book, he got you get in chapter 1, 1 through 9, his opening words of thanksgiving, his greeting. And then really in 110, all the way through chapter 6, Paul's responding to some of the oral reports he's heard. Reports of factions and division, chapter 1 through chapter 4. You get licentiousness, you get these lawsuits that he's hearing about in chapters 5 and 6, he addresses that. And it's not actually until chapter 7 when he opens with, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's not until chapter 7 that he actually begins to address the issues that the Corinthians had raised in their own letter to Paul. Well, he finally gets to that, questions about marriage, about proper behavior at banquets, about food sacrifice to idols, and he, he addresses those questions really in chapter 7 through chapter 11. And then he's going to turn in chapter 12, and he's going to stop addressing their behavior just as individuals, and he's going to talk about their behavior together as a church in chapters really 11 through 14. And you have in those chapters, 11 to 14, maybe his most famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. He's going to correct some misunderstandings about the resurrection. He's going to close in chapter 16 with some comments involving some prejudice and some parochialism that was, that was rampant, sadly, in the church. And there's just one thing that becomes abundantly clear as you read it. And that is that those cultural values of individualism and ambition, of prosperity and promiscuity, those values had begun to run rampant within the church. The problem isn't that there's a church in Corinth. It's that there's too much of Corinth in the church. And it was destroying both their personal relationships and their corporate witness. Okay, so what's Paul's response? 
What does he have to say to this church that so evidently lost its way? And what would he have to say to us? Well, let's read just these first nine verses and begin to find out. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Because in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, knowing what we know about Paul and Corinth, these opening verses... Well, they may be rather surprising to us. I mean, imagine for a moment, if you will, that you're a parent and you've just dropped your child, your freshman child off at college. You've got them settled. You've got them into their dorm. They've got a rug. They've got bedding. They have some money in their account for books and for some other activities. And you are faithful to send them care packages in the weeks that ensue. And yet, word starts to come to you but they're actually not going to class. They're out late at night. They're getting drunk. They're sleeping in. Money for books is being squandered as friends, they go with friends to, to casinos. There are boyfriends you hear, numerous boyfriends. And then the report card. It comes at the end of that first semester, and that report card is a bunch of D's and F's. And worst of all, when you actually get to see your child far from being broken and ashamed, they even have the audacity to boast of their semester and all the things they got to do with that money. Now, if you're a parent, you are grieved and you're probably a bit irate. Did I not teach you? Do you not see how this is destroying you? Hard-earned education money... Right, You're squandering it on gambling and grog. I mean, seriously. You know, that conversation would be full of gesticulations and violent gestures of hard words delivered in harsh tones. But that's not what we see, is it? That's not how Paul addresses the Corinthian church. He doesn't open with condemnation, but he actually opens here with a word of thanksgiving. The critiques and the censures, right, they will come. But it's not where he begins. Right? They've wandered and they've strayed. They've become clearly distracted by all the allurements of the world. 
And so Paul, what he's going to do is he's first going to call their attention back to some basics. And he's really going to appeal to them in these opening verses on three accounts. They're going to serve as our three points. First, he's going to say, remember God's call. Remember God's call. And then he's second, he's going to say, reflect upon God's grace. Reflect upon God's grace. And then he's going to close thirdly, He's going to call them to rest in God's faithfulness. To rest in God's faithfulness. There's a past, there's a present, and there's a future element to all that he says. So first, remember God's call. Remember God's call. That word call, right, or called, serves really as as bookends to the section. So verse 1, we read that Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And we'll go on and read in verse 2 as well that the Corinthian church, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And then if you drop down to the bottom, verse 9, we read there that God is faithful by whom you, referring to the Corinthians, you were called into the fellowship of his son. You know, that word called, we thought about some in First Peter. It's one of those most glorious words in the New Testament. It's a powerful one-word summary just of what it means to be a Christian. For it highlights God's sovereign initiative in bestowing grace upon his people. When we think of Romans 8. reminds us that those whom God called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Such that we know everything works together for the good of whom? of those who are called according to His purpose. Christians are those who have been called by God. They didn't first call out for help. No, first God called out to them. Just take Paul, for example. Think about his own life, the own testimony of his life. Was Paul frantically searching for Jesus on the road to Damascus? Well, certainly not. God interrupted him in the midst of his own mad career. God stopped Paul dead in his tracks. He called out to him by name. He blinded him, and then he would lead him to someone who would share the gospel with him. And that grace which called Paul would be that same grace that would draw him. And it's no different for you or for me. Now, Paul reminds them as well that he's, he's been called by God's will there in verse 1. Part of what he's highlighting is that Paul didn't select the Christian ministry for its promising career path. That's not why Paul selected. He was he was called. This was God's doing. And he's not, therefore, some self-styled or self-appointed leader like we're going to find many of the leaders were boasting of in the Corinthian church. He's Christ's ambassador. He's not an ambassador of one of their own factions. Nor is he some maverick apostle. He's, he's a part of a ministry team. He mentions Sosthenes there in verse 1. And while we can't be certain, it's very possible this Sosthenes was the Jewish synagogue ruler from Acts 18 who was beaten when Paul was brought before the Roman tribunal. And perhaps sometime through that process, God used that own experience to save and to convert Sosthenes, such that one who also would have opposed Christ has also now been called to herald Christ, just like Paul. But of course, these Corinthians, they also have a calling. And notice the calling. It's not a call to power. It's not a call to prosperity. It's not a call to ease and to leisure. 
They are those sanctified, verse 2, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. In other words, God has declared them to be holy and now calls them to live out that holiness. And this right there, that's what separates Christianity from every other major world religion. Because every other religion will say, you act like this in order to earn the favor of the gods or the deities. And that would have been true in the Corinthian societies, the Greco-Roman society, right? All the pantheon of gods they had. It's true in Islam, true in contemporary Judaism, true in Hinduism, right? This whole notion of karma is that the doer of good becomes good and the doer of evil becomes evil. But Christianity says, not at all. Christianity says, the doer of evil, God makes good. Well, how is that possible? Well, it's not because these individuals are holy, but because God has declared them to be holy. You see, holiness is not first achieved, but it's received. The good news of Christianity is not that we gather together like this in order to earn God's favor, but that Christ has earned that favor and secured that favor for us. By His perfect life, by His sacrificial death on the cross, Christ achieved our own holiness. And we receive it when we renounce our sin and when we rely solely upon Christ. So if you've come through the doors this morning and you have not renounced your sin and you have not to come to rely solely upon Christ, this would be God's call to you this morning. Your destiny, your future, your eternity doesn't have to hang on your own holiness, which is wonderful news because if you're anything like me and most of the rest of the people in this room that's not going to work out so well. But rather, your holiness rests in Christ. And His holiness can be yours by repenting of your sin and trusting in Him. And frankly, I can think of no better way to start the new year than to be reconciled to God and to know that the penalty and the power of your sins God has dealt with in Christ. Now, these Corinthians... They lived in a world of patronage. A lot of backslapping and a lot of schmoozing. And your honor and status in society was determined by those friends to whom you were attached and to whom you were aligned. If you secured the right patrons in life, the rest of life's doors would begin to open up for you. And so by speaking of those who are sanctified, those who are set apart as belonging to God, right? This is what God has done past tense in them. He's reminding them, actually, Corinthians, understand God has become your patron. He has become your patron. He's the one ensuring your future. You don't need the patronage of some city socialite, right? Your future is secured by God himself, And that's what sets these Corinthians apart. They belong to God. They're important to God because God has declared them to be important. You're important to God as a Christian. 
not because of what you know, certainly not because of who you know, not your gifts and abilities, not your unique contributions to the Christian church. You're important solely because God has called you and he set his favor upon you. God has made these Corinthians as he has made you part of the church of God. I don't know if you saw that phrase in verse 2, the church of God. And that's an important phrase. It's somewhat of an unusual one, but it's significant because we are prone to talk about church, just thinking of the introduction even, as a man-made institution. It's something we've contrived and built up. A voluntary, you know, social club. It's a local Elks Lodge. It's just a little more religious, but we all gather around shared affinities and, and ideas. Sometimes that's how we think about church. And we think, okay, if it's helpful, I'll be a part of the club. But if the club's not really that helpful, I'm just going to be done with it. And I even read this week of a popular Christian blogger, and he defended his decision not to associate with any local church by saying, and I quote, the church gathering on Sunday morning is not the ecclesia, which is just that Greek word for assembly or church. The Sunday morning gathering is not the ecclesia of God. Well, really? I mean, I guess he hadn't read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. For Paul specifically says right here that the church in Corinth is the ecclesia of God. Throughout Corinthians, Paul is going to refer to the local church as that assembly that gathers together under the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances, things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. So in 1 Corinthians 11, on multiple occasions, I'll just read one, 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, Paul will say, when you come together as a church. And he's going to have that phrase over and over again in 1 Corinthians 11. And what Paul is recognizing is that the very way that we love and belong to the church universal is by loving and belonging to a church local. We reveal that we love and belong to the church universal by being united to the church local, which practically means if you're not a meaningful member of a local church, then the Bible... Well, it doesn't really understand what you mean when you say you're actually part of the universal church. Christ left the local church as his representative. Think of it as an embassy. It's an outpost of his kingdom with the authority of the keys to establish what is the gospel and who is going to be a part of those local churches. So if you're not a member of a local church, my admonition and encourage you is just join one. Anyone, doesn't have to be this one, but one that preaches the same gospel that you just heard me preach a moment ago. Right? God's kingdom is much bigger than this church. But you should join some church. Some church. And if you want to learn more about this one, Ryan mentioned at the start in the announcements, there's a discovery class coming up, I think, on January 24th, right after this service. You can sign up online, and I'd encourage you to do so if you want to learn more about what it would mean to be a part of this body. Paul wanted these these wayward and these distracted Christians to remember their calling. It was going to be a call, as he says, to holiness and a calling to fellowship with Christ and with one another. That's what he says in verse 9. And those are two dominant themes. He's introducing them right here, dominant themes of the letter. Holiness 
and unity. Because Paul sees that churches that honor God are churches comprised, yes, of imperfect people, but imperfect people striving after holiness and seeking to preserve that corporate unity that they have. And if you're looking for ways to pray for UBC in 2016, those would be two great ways to pray. Pray for our corporate witness in unity and for our individual lives in holiness and impurity. Because if Satan wants to upset some of the good work God is doing, those are two places that he would naturally start. Our unity together and our personal holiness. But Paul does more than that. He doesn't just say, remember your calling. He says that they're to reflect upon God's grace. That's the second thing he calls them to do. He says, reflect upon God's grace. And so we come to verse 4 and we read Paul saying to them, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And this is really the heart of this opening introduction, this verse 4. Everything that follows in verses 5 to 9 really just supports this ex, this exclaim of his that he gives thanks to God always because of the grace of God that was given him. And what's this evidence that the Corinthians have received this grace of God? Well, Paul says, he says they're enriched in all speech and knowledge, verse 5. He says of them that they're not lacking in any gift, verse 7. Now, when he mentions speech, he, he may be referring to their eloquence, of which the Corinthians would have taken great pride in their eloquence. Or he may just refer to spiritual speech, right? The tongues and prophecy, which he's going to talk about later in the book. Knowledge probably refers to spiritual insight. Paul says they have knowledge of idols in 1 Corinthians 8. He's going to say that they understand all mysteries in 1 Corinthians 13. And the gifts, these gifts that they appear not to lack in, they probably Some of the other gifts he mentions later in 1 Corinthians 12, gifts like healing and gifts of faith and gifts of utterances. This body, according to Paul, is a body that has been amply graced and enriched by the Lord. And now given how Paul's spoken of them, we would think that this Corinthian church must be a model of faithfulness. Right? It's the poster child of success. It's winning all of the healthy church awards at the sort of young church planters convention. Clearly, that's got to be the Corinthian church, given how Paul's speaking of them. For Paul, what does he do? He gives thanks. Always. But seriously, Paul? The Corinthian church? Are you confusing them with a different church? I mean, this is the congregation, he's going to go on in chapters 1 to 4, that he says is divided over speech. So when they gather, they separate into corners, and some follow Paul and Cephas and other Apollos. This is the congregation he's going to go on to rebuke for their knowledge. A knowledge, he says in chapter 8, that puffs up. They lack love that builds up. But they have plenty of this knowledge that puffs up. This is the congregation he goes on to reprove for all of their selfish exercising of the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14. And yet he commends them right here for these very things, for their speech, for their knowledge, for their gifts. Right? Is, is Paul confused? Is he a screw loose? Right? But there's more. It doesn't stop there. In 1 Corinthians 5, we read that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. 
And they're proud. They're proud of this. They're boasting of this. In chapter 6, members are lawyering up and they're suing one another in the public courts. And while their names are being bitterly uh, strewn across local papers, while that's happening, others we read are shacking up with prostitutes. Their assemblies are unruly. People speak out of turn. Some people trying to speak in tongues. Others attempting to speak and to prophesy. They're even getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're not showing up to church bombed. They're getting bombed at church. Can you imagine a more dysfunctional group of Christians? And Paul says to them, You're the seal of my apostleship. You're the confirmation of my ministry. You're the apple of my eye. I break out into spontaneous songs of praise whenever I think about you. How in the world are we to understand what Paul says here? Now, some think it's all satirical, right? This is all Paul's clever way of poking fun at them. But I don't think... I don't think that's actually what we have. He doesn't praise them for their faith as he does the Colossian church. He doesn't praise them for their partnership of love and the gospel as he does the Philippian church. He doesn't praise them really for any of the fruits of the spirit. If you stop and think those fruits are conspicuously lacking in what Paul praises them for, he does praise them for speech and knowledge and gifts, but he's going to go on. He's going to chew them out over some of these things. And that seems to be because the problem, well, the problem is not with their gifts, but the problem is in their attitude toward those gifts. And there we see the Corinthians' greatest strengths have also become their greatest weaknesses and their greatest liabilities. And isn't that sometimes the case with us? Where those greatest gifts we've received become an opportunity for pride? Is it not the case that we're tending to evaluate ourselves and our gifts? We begin to think of ourselves perhaps as a cut above the rest, right? We've gotten ahead in life. We've grown in Christ, right? We're not in the gutter because we're more disciplined. We are smarter. We are wiser than those around us. But Paul's whole point in here is giving thanks to God for their gifts, By definition, he's saying to them they can't take pride in themselves because what they possess didn't come from them. They were gifts of God's grace in Christ. And I think that's why we read of Christ so frequently in these verses. Every single verse will either have a direct reference to Jesus Christ or a personal pronoun, like referring to him. Every single verse And I think that's uh, Paul's subtle way of driving home that point that all they have, all they possess, all of their gifts have only come to them because of their union and relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. That is the only reason. And it's just the same with you and me. The only reason any of us are here this morning and that we're, we're not hungover, right? We're not out shacking up. We're not using and manipulating others to our own benefit. The only reason that's the case is because of God's grace to us in Christ. Were it not for that, not a one would be here. Not a single one. We would all be out serving self and living like hell for the world. 
And Paul knows this because he knows his own life before coming to Christ. He was a hitman. He was hired to round up Christians and to see that they were summarily executed. He was ruthless and ambitious. He was conniving and shrewd. And yet God humbled him. He stripped Paul of his pride and pretensions. He saved him out of that mad career. And here's the thing. And listen carefully. Only the truly humble can see evidences of grace in others. Only the truly humble can see evidences of grace in others. Only the truly humble are able to to look at it what appears to be just a train wreck of a Christian or of a Christian church and yet still see the flickering of God's grace in their lives. The proud, all the proud can see are faults and shortcomings. Now, I'm married to a woman who likes Jane Austen and we have three daughters, which means I'm quite familiar with pride and prejudice. And I'd be tempted to mocking to mock it as a man, but I confess I actually kind of enjoy it. I'm not ashamed to admit it. It actually has clever dialogue and some character development. But be that as it may, there's a scene. There's a scene where the, the seemingly sort of pompous and pretentious man named Mr. Darcy is being described. And he's described in the scene in this way. Mr. Darcy, well, he's the kind of man who never looks at a woman but to see a blemish. He's the kind of man who never looks at a woman but to see a blemish. Right? That's what the proud do. They look for faults. Their eyes are fixated upon failures. They don't see grace. All they see are shortcomings, imperfections, disappointments. I wonder if that describes you at all. I wonder if you're married. What would your spouse say about you? What would your spouse say about you? Would your spouse say that you are quick to highlight evidences of grace in their lives? Or are you really only quick to highlight areas of growth that they need to pursue? What would your children say about you? Would your children say that you are eager to point out maybe God's work in their own lives? Or are you the kind of parent who regularly camps on all of their foibles and all of their faults? What would your friends say? Would your friends say that they, they tend to look over your life and, and all you tend to see are sort of the squinted eyes of disaffection or disappreciation or a fault? Or do they actually have their hands raised in a posture that's, that's not going to condemn you, but a posture that's meant to give applause to God's work in your life? You know, what about this church? What's our reputation as a church? Do we have a reputation as a church that's eager to recognize evidences of grace in one another's lives, are we known as a church that's that graceless bunch of people that is so quick to judge? Do we look past the tennis shoes and the beards, the casual clothes, or maybe on the other side, do we look past the ties and the suits? Are we able to look past all that, look to the heart, look to what God is doing in an individual? Are we able to celebrate 
those very small steps in sanctification? Or do we merely lament that those steps weren't larger? Here's the thing. All of us are sinners. Every single one. Which means every one of us comes to this church and we get to make our own unique sinful contribution. That's what we all bring to this church. Our own unique sinful contributions. We may be saints, but we're not yet saintly. That doesn't mean God isn't at work. If Paul can see evidences of grace in the Corinthian church, they gather together for the Lord's Supper and they pull out their flasks. If he can see evidences of grace in that church, certainly we have to be able to see evidences of grace among one another. Do you see those evidences? Do you celebrate them in one another? I mean, I see it. I see it in your service. I witnessed it at the end of this past year as scores of you came. People coming to the church office, they were, they were dropping off checks, rushing to get those checks postmarked by December 31st. If you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, it was like the closing of that movie. Everyone coming, rushing, emptying out their pockets and their checkbooks to give to support the work of the ministry that we might be debt-free. It's just we weren't giving to George Bailey. We're giving to God for the work we hope he'll do among us. I mean, what a clear and abundant evidence of God's grace. I mean, I I see it not just in in that giving. I see it in your service. Every Wednesday night, scores of you come and you give of your time to try to minister to children and others, try to bring the gospel to bear. And yet at the same time, there's that small, but there's a faithful band of Believers who gather to pray, and they gather regardless of who shows. And they're always there on Wednesday night lifting up this body in prayer. I witnessed it personally as you all cared for the Wheeler family, right? When we arrived, a number of you, before we even got here, you helped us scout out rental homes. And we had to come to a rental site unseen. We, we didn't have time. So we, we had to trust you, and you served us great. And we arrived in that rental home, and we find there's actually a washer and dryer hooked up, which was wonderful, because we didn't own a washer and dryer. And not only that, but there are all these gift cards there. Gift cards to exotic places like the catfish hole. <laughs> which when you come from sushi in California, you know, you catch the fish off the beach. You're not sure what to make of these catfish. But Bill Kaiser said he's going to show me the ropes, so we're going to go. Your, your kindness and your, your grace to us, right? It was, it was evident throughout our own transition. You know, I see it in the faithfulness of all of you who have not given up on this church over decades. I see it in the way in which you receive the word with joy. I see it in your willingness to sing songs that may not exactly be to your own personal tastes. And while the temptation is to want to close your mouth, you look around and you see, well, actually, some people seem to really like these songs. And you take more joy in the fact that your brother and sister in Christ is encouraged, and so you sing with them. An evidence of grace, a beautiful one. They're all about us. And I could just keep going. We may be a fellowship of sinners. We are, just to be clear, a fellowship of sinners. But like Paul, the mature saint chooses to see who we are in Christ before he or she chooses to see anything else. A church that's lost its way needs to be reminded of God's call. But it it absolutely has to stop and reflect upon those evidences of grace in one another. Despite 
how faint, right? How faint that flicker of grace just might be. And yet, despite all these evidences of grace that Paul's listed, that's actually not where his hope lies. Paul's hope isn't finally there. His hope, as we come to the end, it's there in the faithfulness of God. And he calls them, in, in, in our third point, he calls them to rest in God's faithfulness. To rest in God's faithfulness. For Paul insists in verse 8 that they will be sustained to the end. Guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus. Right, The Corinthian church? Guiltless? On the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, come on, Paul, that's a tall order. This church looks destined for the trash heap, right? Factions, they're on the fast track to failure. But Paul says no, right? No. Why? God is faithful. God is faithful. Paul knows what we are so prone to forget, and that's this. The success of our fellowship depends entirely on God's faithfulness and not our individual giftedness. The success of our fellowship depends entirely on God's faithfulness, not any of our individual giftedness. And at the end of the day, our confidence must therefore rest, it must rest in the faithfulness of God and not in the giftedness of man. Not the giftedness of your pastor, not the giftedness of your elders or anybody else. And it's exactly why Paul's going to go on and he's going to say how he uses the weak and foolish things of the world to shame the strong and the wise. Why? Because it highlights his grace, not our gifts, highlights his grace when he uses such people. If that's true, that should cause us to be a bit more humble about ourselves, if those are the kind of folks God calls. You know, when my wife and I were considering leaving D.C. and coming down here with you to partner with you in the work of the gospel here at UBC, uh, it was a difficult decision. I've joked with you before. I, I hear NWA, and all I ever knew of was a 90s rap group. That's all I knew. Not a place I ever had been to, certainly not a place that I had planned to, to place roots and possibly spend the rest of my life. And yet it seemed that's where the, the Lord was leading us. I didn't receive any dreams, didn't hear any audible voices. I simply prayed and waited and sought counsel and prayed and waited. And I remember being slightly frustrated because my wife didn't say very much. And if you know my wife, um, in, a, in a respectful way, but nonetheless, she's usually, she's rather free in speaking her opinion. And I love my wife for that. I appreciate that. I welcome her input. But on this issue, she was unusually reserved. She was reluctant to speak. And, and I was a bit perplexed. And I think she knew it. So finally, at one point, after a few weeks, she just looked at me and she said, Brad, I don't finally trust you. I trust the Lord. It's one of those moments as a husband, you're like, okay, how do, how do I take this one? I don't finally trust you. I, I trust the Lord. Am, am I supposed to be encouraged by that statement or not? But you know, she didn't mean that primarily. That statement is a lack of confidence in me. Though I've given her plenty of reasons to lack confidence. She didn't mean it primarily for that. It was rather a statement about her absolute and unwavering confidence in the Lord. My wife understood that she had something far better than my own leading. And that's she had the Lord himself watching over her life. And with him by her side, she finally had nothing to fear. 
Now, you might feel like your Christian life is in the gutter. Your marriage is in shambles. You may look out over this own church body. This, You may think, what a motley crew. right? How can this crew accomplish anything for the Lord? You know, Paul looked over the Corinthian church. And how, how does he summarize them? He says in 11.17, you do more harm than good. Sometimes we may be tempted to look out over one another and say, you, you do more harm than good here. Maybe you feel that way about members. Maybe you feel that way about yourself, doing more harm than good. Right? But God is faithful. There is a church in Corinth, of all places, a church in Corinth. And this church, right? we together, we're still plugging along in ministry. He has been faithful before, and he will certainly be faithful again. We rest in his grace, not our own gifts. We rest in his faithfulness, none of our own faculties, all his faithfulness. For here's the thing. You know, church is hard. There's a reason why people struggle often with church. It's hard. It's messy because it's comprised of a bunch of messy people. And it may well get messier. I pray for conversions. I pray you are praying for conversions. But you know what will happen? If we see a lot of people converted here, church is going to get messy. Because they're coming out of an old way of life. The old man's warring with the new. It's going to get messy. It's glorious. But it gets a bit messier. People don't change overnight. And it's easy, so easy to become distracted along the way. Right? The values of our own culture are increasingly not like the values that a Christian is called to embody and embrace. Whether it's sexual values, whether it's material values, whether it's character, whether it's even submission to right authority. Like the Corinthian church, we are so susceptible to being distracted and forgetful and falling prey to all the influences around us. And so Paul says in these opening verses to that church, to us, says, remember God's call, a call to holiness and to fellowship, to live out who God has already declared us to be in Christ. It's to reflect upon God's grace. Look for evidences of His grace in one another. See them. Note them. Celebrate them. And yet, most importantly, rest in God's faithfulness. Our existence turns, right? It turns on His faithfulness, not our giftedness. And if we as a body can keep these things in mind, we are well on our way to tackling whatever God may bring us in 2016. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this book. We're grateful there are churches who have gone before us and and faithful shepherds like Paul who can give counsel and instruction that can be of such benefit and use to us as we try and live out imperfectly, yes, but try and live out our Christian lives. Lord, we pray that you would grow us in appreciation for your grace. Build in us a humility. Establish us in our holiness and in our unity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.